Welcome to First Generation Burn, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. This is the season five finale. We did 10 episodes again, uh, 11 if you count the bonus with Sophia. Didn't think we'd get here, but we did. So thank you to everyone that listens. I seriously appreciate you. It's been an amazing experience as always. As I'm recording this, we're in the middle of a medical crisis and xenophobia is at an all-time high. So I think it's really important to keep talking about all these issues as we move forward into the rest of 2020. But before all that, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, drop a review. Shout out to Listening Party at Canal Street Market where this is recorded. Also, I want to highlight two other podcasts that I currently put out as well. One is Beige 2 Brown. That's the numeral two. That's myself, Antia Constable, and Gavin Allowan talking about all things color and pop culture. Also, Sneaker Wars Talk Back, which is a companion podcast to MTV's Sneaker Wars, a sneaker competition show currently stripping on Wild and Out's YouTube channel. Sneaker Wars Talk Back, however, features myself and showrunner Jerome Milligan and it's a behind-the-scenes look at MTV's Sneaker Wars. Both are podcasts uh, that are available wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, but for today's season finale, season five finale of First Gen Burden, today we talked to Veda Portalo, a VP of brand and marketing at Spotify for their premium services. Uh, this episode with Veda was a long time coming. Been trying to connect our busy schedules for a while, but it was totally worth it. We talk about how she spent her childhood as a refugee from Bosnia and spent two years in a Hungarian refugee camp before finally making her way to America, settling in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and all the way up to today where she's a vice president at Spotify. And this is after years of several high-level positions at agencies like McCann, Untitled, Droga5. It's a really incredible story. Truly, truly inspirational. A great way to end the season. So, without further ado, here is Veda Partalo. Liam Gallagher and I will have you know share a birth date. Oh, so, really? So, yeah, I'm totally Liam, Team Liam. What um, what sign are you? I'm a Virgo. Virgo. Oh, okay. What, what does that mean? Yeah. What are the attributes of that? Let's, I have no idea. Let's, let's crank up the old Google machine and see what the Virgo attributes are. I've recently been told that I'm not nice. So I imagine Jesus Christ. it wasn't like in a, in a, in an offensive way. Right. Someone was like, they were like, I don't know if you're really nice. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm a nice per Like I'm a nice person. <laughs> sure. And they were like, well, if you ask me for like five things to describe you, nice would not land in the first <laughs> five. Like it just wouldn't be there. Like there'd be other qualities. For sure. But nice. So let's see if yeah. uh, there's niceness in Virgos. There you go. So I'll go down the list. So number one, Virgos are critical thinkers. A Virgo will go through all possible elements of thinking before making a decision. You can give me a yes or no, affirmative, whatever. Depends on the occasion, I think. Sure. Virgos are hardworking. I would say that. Depends on the occasion, <laughs> I'm sure. They're amazing artists. Yeah, Leonard Cohen and I also share a birthday. There you amazing. go. Shout out to Leonard Cohen. Yeah, him and Liam. <laughs> They're all very and musical. And Stephen King. Oh, really? And oh, Bill wow. Murray's the last one. Then I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out of knowing who else was born on September 21st. Speaking of Stephen King, I, I watched the first episode of The Outsider not too long what ago. What did you think? The supernatural aspect of it right towards the end of the episode, I was like, oh, Jason Bateman, I, I want to feel for this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like the twist, the psychological twist. I'm I'm, I'm having trouble just maintaining all the, being up with all the content, but I do like it and I, I think it's quite done. Quite have, you, well done. have you read much Stephen King before? No, not really. I'm not I'm not a horror guy or like a Stephen King guy in general. Do you want I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. But I will say, unless you're like a Stephen King person, yes. 
you're going to slowly get more and more disappointed with the really? show. Okay, so, so it just depends on how much investment you want to sure. give it. Okay, so well, I will let's spoiler alert for the audience right now. Okay. Because that said, I don't give a shit <laughs> either way. So just spoil it for me. I don't care. It just gets freakier and then more obviously freakier, like almost cousin it level. Oh, really? Yeah. Cousin it level. So huh. we're close. It's getting closish to that. Into like a body horror space because it kind of gets starts there. Right? A little so, bit. Yeah. So just you wait. It just gets more <laughs> kind of obvious horror. Like it started off so well and I was so impressed by it. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay. And Bateman directed the first two oh, episodes. He's so good. He's good. He acted, directed the whole thing. But he could only do that. two. So he's only in two episodes. I will spoiler alert again. Interesting. Oh, he's only in two episodes? Does he die? <laughs> just, just, I don't care. I, I truly don't care. He does die. He does die. Yeah. Got it. Do you watch Ozark? Yes. Love okay. it. Absolutely Love Ozark. Great. Absolutely great. Does also, he direct any of that? He does direct Ozark. Or he has directed Ozark. I know he's an, an EP on that one as well. Who does he use for his fucking lighting? Because I can I never he uses see the half the show. Like, <laughs> And I don't know if it's my astigmatism or if it's just like, it's just the way he lights things is so dark that unless you're watching it in like a pitch dark room yeah. on a gigantic screen. For sure. I was like, can you, you fuckers turn a light on? Yeah. I'm like, I live in New York City. There's light pollution from everywhere. I can't see what's going on. You know what I have? Okay. So this is slightly, it's humorous and at the same time, really productive and useful. So when I set up my living room, I had a friend build out this like crazy couch, like set up because I was like I want it to look a very specific way and so yes. he built it and then I'm like fuck I don't want it to be like focused around a TV so I removed the idea of a TV completely from it gotcha. and then I after remove the idea of a TV yeah there's like there's no room for it in that space yes. but then of course after a month I'm just a human being I want to watch TV. <laughs> so now what I have is I have this hidden TV that's literally on like a little rolly cart, like like in high school when the substitute teacher's in and it's like, Mrs. Thompson's sick today, we're going to watch a movie. Like I have a little rolly cart that sits in the closet with the TV. And then when it's TV time, oh. I just roll that fucker out. I actually like that strategy. It's kind really of, nice. Yeah, it's kind of a tiny house type of strategy, <laughs> like a Murphy bed approach to a TV. Yes, it's exactly that. How big is the TV? Uh, like 40, no, 50 inch. Oh, yeah, that's a decent sized TV. Yeah. Do you do a projector as well? I also have a projector in my bedroom for nighttime. It's too bright in my apartment for a projector. Yeah, I know. I can't even turn it on until like 8 p.m. Yeah, I'm, I mean, by 8 p.m. I'm asleep. Yeah, for I'm sure. a woman over 35, man. <laughs> I'm a man approaching 40, so yeah, I can't yeah, do it. Yeah, sleep. Sleep is what <laughs> sleep. I am after 8 p.m. I've only realized the power of sleep, I think, probably the past two years. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I love sleep. I don't understand those people who are really proud of like six hours of sleep. Like they come into work and they're like, I slept for six hours and I went know. to the gym. I did all this shit. And I was like, I slept for nine. I'm still tired. We were just talking about in the previous recording session, the, the past few years, when once we exited out of hustle culture yeah. and hustle mindset, when people were proud to lose sleep over something and now we're focused more on mental health and, and you know, the... Uh, the positive attributes of that from a from a work life balance or slash just life balance. Yeah. The yeah. I'm, now everyone's I a Gwyneth sleep. Paltrow. <laughs> We're all goop. <laughs> everyone's a goop. Everyone's a goop. Everyone's gooping. <laughs> that may be the name of the episode. Okay. Everyone's gooping. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. Everyone's gooping. Oh my god! So Veda Partalo. Yes. 
thank you so much for coming by. I know we we're trying to make this happen for a minute. Yeah, sorry, man. No, I'm sorry. Uh, actually, why is anyone sorry? Who cares? Yeah, we made it happen. Look at us. Hell yeah, we're here. It's existing Saturday in the same afternoon, space. New York City. <laughs> we're happy. There's like a party going on of people shopping. Yes, which is what you want. Yeah. Um, and also, um, I'm grateful to our mutual friend, Adam Garcia, for introducing us. He's He is the gift that keeps on giving. I did not realize until I listened to the podcast of you two talking how far you guys go back. Oh, yeah. I was like, wait, he knows Anton? They talk about Brian Haker. Like, what is going on? What is this, like, little world that existed without me? I kind of got <laughs> jealous. I'm like, how is this, well, this feasible? He has other friends. Yeah, for sure. Well, because we lived in Portland at the same time. And when I moved out to Portland, we had connections uh, from Fallon when he was over there in Philly. Then we got I got connected with Adam. Then we vibed. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, this is a easier decision. Yeah, you're like, the, I like this guy. Exactly. He was a culture hack to Oregon, but then we realized that through b-boy culture and hip-hop culture, we had uh, loose connections that went back to the 90s through, you know, just through old school b-boy world, yeah. old school freestyle session, message boards, and it was a whole thing. It just became a, a more of a connection point for us. Did you listen to his album much after the podcast? <gasps> oh, shit. I, I couldn't Snake find bird. it. Snake, Snake bird. Snake bird. Yeah, ELP and Snake bird. Yeah. Oh, man. I think I can dig that up. I <laughs> can you? find that. Oh, for sure. That's good. It's good. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for having me. Love the opportunity to share your headspace right now. The way we begin the podcast is for our uh, illustrious guests to say a little bit about who they are and where they're from. I'd love for you to kick it off there. Yeah. So already shared the name, Veda. I am. So I always have a hard time telling people where I'm from. Yeah. Just because I don't really anymore feel like I'm from anywhere, and you'll—I'm sure a lot of people have talked about this. Sure. Um, as as immigrants, so I was born in Bosnia. Yes. Um, and I was there until I was 12. We then spent a year and a half in a refugee camp in Hungary. Then after that, we immigrated into Minneapolis. I went to high school. Can we school. unpack that just a little bit? Oh yeah. Which you just tell me yeah. which moment you want to unpack. <laughs> like recently, I was having this thing which might kind of give you a sense of like my family and everybody else. But um, my dad, my mom and dad have retired. And like all American retirees, they now live in Florida. But because they're still Bosnians, they spend the summer in Bosnia and then the rest of the year in Florida. And so last summer, my dad was like fixing up our old house. And so like- From Bosnia? Yeah. He's your back, Bosnian yeah, house. Yeah. So they're back in Bosnia, literally like- Fix it. They're like renovating right. the bathroom. And forgive my ignorance, Bosnia Herzegovina. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Bosnia was a state within Yugoslavia. There was a civil war inside of Bosnia. Then it like splintered into a. Th if you go down to Bosnia, it's called like four different countries Got there. It. But no, like Google Maps won't recognize that. <laughs> I think that's not a thing. Yeah, for the sure. The rest of the world's like sure, people. You guys can organize yourself <laughs> however you want. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's yeah, a, I can yeah. imagine like the 360 camera just driving around for street view. Dude, it's a strange. I mean, I. I have love and admiration for that place, but I also have moments where I'm like, that's a fucking shithole that I'm from. <laughs> like, it, like, and I, I can hold both. I can hold both. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, it's not, you know what I mean? It's not like great one way or another. It does, being from there though, will make you appreciate America no matter what. Yeah. Even at its worst. When someone's like, yeah, but Trump's your president. Isn't that terrible? I'm going to move to Canada. And I'm like, what are you, crazy? <laughs> Do you know how nice we have it here? Yeah, I know. We're spoiled. We are terribly spoiled. Incredibly and our like spoiled. idea of what like what bad actually looks like. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's nowhere on the radar here. Right. We're talking to... about lighting in 
Yeah. In, like these, in these premium prestige yeah. TV shows. Why does that, Jason that are, Bateman not light properly yeah, in this exactly. HBO show that I yeah. pay $14.99 a month? It's kind of bad. It is kind of bad. But also we're adults and we work hard. So yes. I'm, like, I'm going to we're adults. Well. We work. We work fairly hard. I don't, I also have this thing. I think it could be because I grew up in a socialist country where I think we're all overpaid. Like, yeah, I, probably. Honestly, I think we're all fucking overpaid where I'm like, I'm glad I make this money and I'm glad that like it's at equivalent rate to like men of, you know, like in the same roles. But then I'm like, should any of us be making this much money for what Probably we, like, not. What's the contribution we're making to the world? No. Like, I love my job. It's an interesting job. Not everyone could do it. Right. But like, I'm not like a teacher. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. more significant, but I definitely yeah. out earn one. Right. Anyway, I don't know how we got there. No, no. My mom was a doctor and I and she, you know, she made money. But I remember thinking, man, you are saving lives out there. Yeah. And you are contributing. I remember there was a year when I was just an editorial illustrator, this is 2006, and I remember the tax return, I only made $700 that year. I was so fucking poor. Why did they even send you a tax return? I, I think because like, I just needed to- The stamp cost more I, than anything I, you could sure. give back. I, I just wanted to go through the process of, of do, submitting my taxes, because I'd worked at the mall as, <laughs> as a kiosk manager making $32,000 a year, so I had to do taxes. Yeah. And then the next year I was like, I'm gonna be creative. And then I made zero dollars. So it was more of just like, oh, this sucks. Do I even like this? Yeah. Like, can I be a creative? I know, yeah. Can I? Question mark. But anyway. Is this feasible? Is this feasible? Wait, so going back so, to you. So sorry, I was talking about dads. So he's fixing up this bathroom. Yeah, in Bosnia. In Bosnia. And they're like spending money on it. And I was like, dad, like, I'm glad you guys are like fixing it up if you're doing it for, because he was sort of hinting that he was doing it for me and my sisters. I have two sisters. And I was like, but if you guys are doing it because you think we're going to come back. Yeah. Like, we're not coming back. <laughs> like, <there's, laughs> like it, we're just, we're not going to come back and live there. And my right. dad was like, but, like, it's so nice here. And don't you remember your old neighbors? And, like, can't you just, like, remember all the good times? And I was like, honestly, I don't, like, because the war started when I was around seven, eight. Right. What are the conditions at that time, too? And seven, eight, it wasn't that bad like, what do you remember? Yet. So when I start remembering, some of the first things you remember is just like how how weird it, it began at school, like how, how it started to be a little bit creepy. Like the little things that now I look back and I think, oh, that's insid insidious, that's bad. Like yeah. very quickly we all, like Bosnia's all white. Like everyone looks exactly the same. Yeah, like, there's yeah. no, like you can't tell difference just by seeing right. a person, right? There's no yeah. racial difference. Eastern and so Europe. like, yeah. And so then you're like, you're supposed to understand ethnic difference very quickly, but how do you know ethnic difference? Right. And like tribal differences. Yeah, well, religious, really, religious, right? Yeah. So it's like that you've got Bosnian Muslims, you've got Bosnian Serbs or Christians, really, and then Bosnian Catholics who were mostly Croatians. But like everyone, and in cities, most people like intermarried, it was a socialist country, so religion wasn't out in the open. And most people were like, kind of like in Sweden, they're like, atheists or agnostics like they're not practicing anything right. did you grow up religious no got it i didn't even know about the concept of god until the war started that's so interesting <laughs> most of us didn't they they were just like wasn't a right. thing and, and my then parents, all of a sudden it's and then forced it's, upon you yeah in, it's everywhere in an incredible will, way this is a fairly entertaining story of how my mother explained the concept of God to me, which I'm like, mom, you really did not set us up for success. So this was, I think I was eight and all these girls in school were wearing little cross earrings mm -hmm. and we were Oh, that a, sounds cool. Yeah. So I was like, they look cool. 21 and, Jump Street. And so I wanted one, right? And we lived, I didn't know this at the time, but we lived in a mostly Christian town. 
My mom is um, ethnically Muslim. My dad is ethnically Christian. So I come home and they're both like atheists. Yeah. <laughs> so I come home and I'm like, mom, I want these like, I call them plus earrings. <laughs> Because I knew what a plus sign was. I did not know what a cross was or its sure. significance. So I was like, I want these plus earrings, these like plus sign. All the girls have them. And my mom was like, no, that's for people who believe in God. And I was like, what's, what's God? Yeah. Like, what's that? And it, I was just old enough to know, like we had Santa for New Year's, not for Christmas, because there was no Christmas in Bosnia. Okay. And so she was like, you know how some people, some kids still believe in Santa, but you know that Santa's not real, like you're old enough. And my sister and I were like, yeah. And she was like, well, God's like a year-round Santa that people believe in <laughs> that goes around granting daily wishes. We know he's not real, but some people still believe in him. People who believe in God wear those earrings. And I was like, oh, I God? don't want that stupid earring. <laughs> God's like a year-round Santa. Year-round Santa that That's... goes around that apparently might go around granting wishes. There you go. May may or may not. Yeah. Depending on the vibe. Yeah. That's so funny. So so once you when you left Bosnia, mm -hmm. um, and then you technically left as a refugee. Yes. And I remember uh, when I was a child hearing those stories in the news. But of course, I'm not at a at a at a mental capacity to truly understand what that means. Yeah. And also, you know, at the time it was more the new, the headlines were very clickbaity about what that was. So it was very buzzy. And then like a typical news cycle, it goes away. Yeah, so yeah. you hear a lot about the Bosnian refugees. Uh, and then all of a sudden they just move on to probably like the Clinton impeachment. Yeah, pretty quickly like after, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when it came to actual real life ramifications, what was that transition for you? So it was, I mean, there was, we had, so there was the time, the period of war where it's slowly built up and like the discomfort built up overall so like i mentioned early on like first we were like you learn how to decipher what people are by by their names right like before um the name muhammad didn't mean anything different to me from the name ivan yes but then all of a sudden i knew immediately like oh no that's a muslim muslim name that's a catholic name yeah immediately right and so like that starts to then create these worlds in which people start to separate so all the Ivans on one side and Alexanders and all the like Naims and Muhammad's on the other. Right. And so that was like maybe the first year or two of understanding like, oh, there are differences among us, even in school. Right. And then what was your school integrated in that? It was, I mean, every school was integrated because there was only public schools. Gotcha. And we were mixed. And so that being mixed at that time was almost like being biracial in the 60s in the US, right? Like it was not a common thing necessarily. And then slowly the Muslims in our hometown started to depart. Yep. And so my mom's side of the family was constantly under threat and they started to feel like they had to go. Oh my gosh. And so we majority of like my mom's side of the family immigrated, some to Germany, some to Sweden, who I now see all the time because I work for Spotify. It's a Swedish company. I'm in Stockholm once a month. So I'm always seeing my cousins, which is great. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I got people everywhere, man. I got people in Australia. I got people in Canada, both the French part and the English part. Like we're everywhere. So that's the one nice thing of a diaspora is you start to feel like a really global person. You got yeah. cousins in every part of the world. That's pretty dope. Yeah. It is kind of nice. But then also you've got cousins that are always asking you for money from every part of the world. Because that's Less also dope. a very Bosnian custom. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, you don't have any kids, Veda. Come on, help Yeah, for us. sure. That's a Filipino thing. Too, yeah. so. <laughs> My parents are also prepping me to fully, like, fund their next home in retirement. They're like, that's just what you do. We're adults now, and we're old, and you and your sister yep. are grown up, and now pay for us. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's a very, like... I can I'm, vibe on that. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I'm like, if I ever have kids, I'm totally going to, like, lead them to believe that that is the way to yes. do it. Yes, yeah. You have to. You have to take care of your elders. Anyway, so... Uh, families started to really break apart, like the extended family. And then it started to get progressively worse and worse and worse, which was like weekly bombings. We had no power for months on and food ran out. What like, would you hear at night? Would you hear the bombings at night? You'd hear mostly at night. You'd hear gunshots. If you were going to get bombed, usually there's sirens. And so like you'd hear like similar here to what, you know, that every Wednesday, I think it's at like one or 2 p.m. Yeah. First Wednesday of the month, they do the test. That's the one thing that I realized um, that I still have like some PTSD of. Cause when I hear it, I like, I could be like doing the dishes and all of a sudden my heart rate goes up mm. and then I'll be like, why is my, like, why am I sh like short of breath? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. and then I'm like, oh shit, the sirens are yeah, on. Like, that thing. And it just, it embeds itself in your body. I'm sure people have like from, from different wars have different kind of things. Sometimes they're like auditory. Sometimes it's food. Yeah. Like my little, sister little hates this. Different like, triggers. Yeah, yeah. She has this like flavor <laughs> that she hates that she calls it war cake flavor. <laughs> <laughs> what is war cake flavor? So like we ran out of like there was nothing good to eat after a while. Right. So like you could have rations, which was like flour. Yeah. And if you had fruit trees, you can like ferment that fruit and make it into jam. And so my mom would sometimes try to make like a cake like thing like a sponge cake like thing because there's like you didn't have it like frosting forget about it like yeah, what are you forget crazy? about you it. don't have any water let alone frosting hell yeah so she would like bake this thing with essentially just jam yeast and flour and she would give it to us as cake and i think we liked it at the time because it was like the sweetest thing we could have yeah and we called it war cake but now anytime like a spongy texture is like that, my sister freaks out. She's like, tastes just like war cake. I hate it. Oh my gosh. Just brings her back. She yeah, hates it. totally. Hates war cake. So, uh, so yeah, so then there was, it got really, really intense. My mom is an electrical engineer. She was a professor. So she was teaching in school. And by the summer when we left, she started to get a lot of death threats because she was Muslim. And she was like one of the only Muslims left in town. Yeah. And non-practicing. Yeah, non just never practiced in her life. and But her name was Muslim, so it was enough for people to know. And um, I think, I want to say it was August, she got not just death threats from like school administrators. And your father's and Catholic. Christian. Christian, okay. Also not practicing. Also not practicing. <laughs> They're two atheists stuck Totally, with yeah, yeah. Well, well yeah. But with these labels yeah, as. Yeah. Exactly. And she. Um, the police force came in because she essentially submitted her resignation, said she wasn't going to go back to school. And they came and they said, you either show up on Monday and potentially like die because of these death threats, or we will arrest you and your children will have like no one at home. Oh my God. And so I think I want to say that Friday or like Saturday, she was like, you got one night to pack kiddos. And my dad couldn't leave the country because like men couldn't leave the country, period. Why and is that? So because everyone was like at war, everyone got drafted. Okay. Um, so all the men were drafted, and so she packed us up. And your father was also drafted. Yeah, he was drafted as well, which was also kind of insane. So he was working as like um, like a tank me mechanic, I think, on one side of the army, but he literally had like close friends, family members on the other side, hmm. got drafted on the other side. Um, and so she just packed us up. 
And you don't realize this, like, or at least it's not a very commonly talked about thing, but war's like a big business, especially for like, for like the everybody. underground business, but everybody. Yeah, because it facilitates a commerce yeah. of weapons. And yeah, so when yada, people are yada. like, how do refugees leave? They, they have this impression that like, you pack up a bag and you start walking. That's not how fucking refugees leave. You pay a guy. Yeah. You pay a guy like pretty much all the money you have because at that point all of your resources are depleted because yeah. you've just like been like, living through a war. Right. Like a transporter type. Yeah. And so we paid a guy, I think it was like $5,000 a head, which down there, like it's here, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Can you imagine like down there where like an average salary at that point was maybe five grand a year? Right. And in the 90s. Yeah. It was 96, somewhere in 96. Yeah. And so we paid a guy, or was it 95? Shit, it was 95. Paid a guy for all three of us, got on a bus, one suitcase. I remember this whole thing with the suitcase of like, what do you pack, what do you not pack? Because my mom was like, get a suitcase you can carry. Because right. I'm not carrying anything for anyone. And I was 12 at the time. So I love her pragmatism. Oh, yeah. She was like, <laughs> you need something you can carry. And, um, and it was one of those things, like, during a war, there's one thing that happens to families, which is like, you're a unit, but really, everyone's got to take care of themselves. You, like, even as a kid, you'll find a lot of kids that grew up in a war, they'll be like, no, I'm pretty, like, self-sufficient. It's, like, forced into you. Yeah. There was, like, this, um, oh, my God, this is, like, a terrible thing to admit to. There's this narcissist test that you can take online. A friend of mine was accusing me of being slightly narcissistic after a breakup. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not a narcissist. Anyway, so I took it. I was like, fine, I'll prove you. And one of the, like, one of the, like, Score, qualities, like, A++ yeah, on But literally, one of the, like, narcissistic qualities is self-sufficiency. And I was eight out of eight. Everything else, of, thank God, was, like, low. So I'm clearly not. But I'm like, why go. is this out of whack? And so I sent it to my sisters, and they took it, and it was the same thing. And I was like, this... <laughs> this stupid bus test is like culturally biased. It wasn't even a bus. I think it was like a legit test. But I do think that there's that element of like self-sufficiency you develop where you're just like, I can take care of myself. No one else needs to take care yeah. of me. And like you sort of embed it in your brain, which probably isn't healthy. Mm. Anyway, so we leave on this bus. Our bus actually got kidnapped on the way out, which oh is gosh. kind of insane in yeah. itself and a different story. For sure. And we got held for a week, and then we were released. But but to what end? Held why? I think we Kidnapped got. Why? I think the bus was trying to go through kind of a, a red line zone between where two two armies were fighting. Got it. Okay. And so I think the soldiers, the Serb soldiers at the time, pulled us into this high school and held us there for your protection or for uh, political reasons. I don't know. Okay. Like nobody really knows. I, I mean, there was a lot of panic because everyone thought like. Or they wanted to use you as leverage. Maybe, maybe. But there was also a lot of stories of just like mass murders. Sure. So we're like, maybe they'll just kill us all, and this is like the end of the road. This is as far as we got. Um, that potentially could have happened. The crazy thing is like there was. <laughs> so this is. I laugh talking about it, but it is real. Like there was yeah. people who overheard these soldiers talking about like, what do we do with all of them? I think there was like 80 of us on the bus. Wow. And the fact that it was summer actually mattered because they were like, we can't like, we can't get rid of 80 bodies in the summer quickly enough. Right. It well, was just like, cause the bodies would rot. It would you'll be too decompose hard. Yeah. too quickly. Yeah. It's too hard to work on. Literally, the fact that it was August was the like... Scope's the scope's too saving, large. Can't deal it. Yeah. Can't do it. Yeah. It was the saving grace. And then the mobsters that we paid to get through actually got wind of the fact that the bus had been kidnapped. They sent a different bus with a different bus driver after seven days, like, negotiated it somehow. And we got out and we got to the Hungarian border. Because right, the, the mobsters want to keep their reputation. Yeah, they're like, well, I think the payment worked too. Like, you get 50% up front and 50% when they get to the Bosnian border. 
Because like our cousins were paying for us. And oh, so I think so they, they have wanted- they vested interest yeah, too. They wanted the other half the payment. Wow. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> I know. So big this business war. So we get to the Hungarian border and we had immigration papers to get into Sweden because we have aunts in Sweden. I mentioned like family there. And Sweden had kind of a progressive-ish policy for immigration at that time where anyone with like higher degrees could get in. And my mom had two PhDs. And so they were mm. like, perfect. But that time, that week where we got kidnapped was actually the same week where the peace agreement in Dayton got signed. Wow. And so when we crossed over- Talk about timing. I know, shit timing, man. When we crossed over into Hungary, our papers were no longer legit because we weren't officially refugees anymore. And now we were just illegal immigrants because huh. officially the country was at peace. Wow. Okay. And so because of that, our papers weren't valid. We couldn't move into Stockholm. Like we couldn't go north. So we got held in Hungary at a refugee camp in a little shit town called Bekesheba. Bekesheba. It was such a terrible place, which is... It's still open, I believe, and Syrian refugees live in it now. That like for how thing, long? How long has it been open? How long have, were you there? Year and a half. A year and a half. A long time. We and, got stuck. There's no way to a, get a out. Camp environment. Yeah, it's like um, imagine the world's worst like um campus that's fully like fenced in with barbed wire fencing, and it's like you've got 80 rooms on one floor and one bathroom that everybody shares. Right. And That's they, a free-range jail. Yeah, and they like, yeah, and they jam in like 10 to 15 people per room. It's like you just walk in, it's just bunk beds left and right without any like um, sorting of like based on gender or families. They don't yeah. give a shit. They're like everybody in there. Later, I like did some research and found out that like the Hungarian money, the Hungarian government was essentially getting money to have these camps. Huh. But the way they were getting paid is per head. So like the UN would give them, I don't know, like $5,000 a year. Oh, so they would get subsidized based on population and, and so then they would pocket the money, but overcrowd. Yeah, it was in their interest. Gosh, they the yeah, they're okay. like, let's it's bring It's a scam. In. Yeah. Well, it's a business. It's, it's a business. A terrible, terrible, evil business. It's like for-profit uh, prisons in America, Yeah, you've right? seen the film Kids for Cash? No. Kids for Cash, it came out, I think, in 2014, 2015. It was a similar thing where it was uh, privatized uh, youth jails uh, where there was a judge or, like, I guess a series of judges or a few of them where they were they were incentivized through similar yeah, means, similar systems. Yeah, to just ship these kids into... Exactly, for, like, low-level crimes, like, things that would, they should have just, like, given them a slap on the wrist and sent them back home. They would, they would basically send them to juvie. People are the worst. People are the worst. Just the worst. Yeah. There's one of my colleagues. I love him. His name's Will Hope. And that's his most common phrase. People are the worst. <laughs> period. Anytime anything happens, you just hear from Will Hope. People are the worst. <laughs> the worst. There you go. So uh, so after So we get into the camps, camp experience. And we were there for a year and a half, played a lot of chess, no school, none of that. And then we immigrated into Minneapolis. Okay. We had some cousins in America and they were in Minneapolis. But how do you, how do you navigate that? How do you even... Oh man, I, like, I just remember my first... There's two distinct memories my first day of school. One is I thought I was extremely well-dressed because I was so excited that I still fit into my... Uh, do you know the brand Kappa? Very popular with Eastern Europeans of who course, appreciate yeah. soccer. Shout out, shout out to Vetements <laughs> when they when they brought back Kappa. Yes, but in 1996, I think at this point, or was it seven? Yeah. Like this was not a thing in American high schools, man. Yeah, like, it wasn't. Yeah. No, it's just not a thing. I, I was head to toe. Head to toe Kappa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
a Kappa tracksuit. Yeah, with- in Minneapolis. <laughs> in high school, there was like predominantly Hmong and African American. Okay, yeah. And everyone was like, what? What right. is what and, is and, this? And the Hmong uh, immigrants or Asian immigrants that also went came into the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. came usually in the seventies. So most yes. of them that were like first generation born in America, but parents were like yes. full on Hmong, still like acculturated. For sure, there was that uh, Clint Eastwood movie. Yes, that, that was Gran about Torino. The, uh, Gran Torino. Yeah, yes, it was on indeed. the tip of my tongue. Exactly that. Clint Eastwood, what a weird character. Man, man. I was like, this, is this is he helping or hurting? I have no idea. I think it was hurting. Like, I don't know that I know. it was good. Yeah, that was a weird one. Yeah, All he's I a weird is, one. like, most of my Hmong friends did not like it. Yeah. They were not fans of yeah. Gran Torino. So I was exactly. like, okay, maybe this is the appropriate way to feel about it. Like, the other thing is he directed, starred, and didn't he write that thing too? He did. He was quite passionate. We're like, For sure. why didn't he consult anyone? I don't know. I guess he did because he talked about a culture which... Probably wasn't his expertise. I know. But then the the year after that, didn't he make that halftime in America ad? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he was just short for cash. Maybe. Or, yeah, how soon after did he talk to the invisible chair? Oh, God. That was the year after. Yeah, the RNC. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, we diverge. So, yeah. You're um, in the Twin Cities. I'm in the Twin Cities. I didn't speak English. I didn't speak English, which I think helped. I honestly believe that helped greatly in my assimilation into American culture. That and the fact that the only things that we were exposed to that was like American culture before electricity went out back home in Bosnia were, um, what did we watch? Well, there was like the Muppets and then Twin Peaks, which our parents let us watch even at the age of seven. So dark. We named our German shepherd Laura Palmer after the (laughs) dead girl. Now I'm like, Mom, why'd you let us watch it? Yeah, isn't that terrible? We're kids. Oh my God. And then we watched The Cosby Show. And I know that, like, Cosby's a frowned upon character now. For sure. But at the time, at the time. The Cosby Show was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Absolutely. At the time, yeah. Cemented in my mind that was America. To me, it was The Cosby Show. Yeah. For a time, it was America. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was for me. And then I came in into, like, this African American high school. I did not know we lived in the hood. We lived in the hood. Who knew that Minneapolis even has a fucking hood? Exactly. It does. But there's a big uh, hip-hop culture in Minneapolis as well. Yes. Which I know you're entrenched in. Well, I wouldn't say, I would not use the words entrenched. Okay. <laughs> I think a I part was, of. Yeah, I think I was accidentally swept into. <laughs> Were you into hip-hop in, in uh, Bosnia as well? No. No. I mean, I, like, well, one. Because you were in Kappa, so you're one step close. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of spin jackets. I yeah, uh, bought a Marshalls from Kappa. Yeah, oh, man. Well, the thing is, like, I was... By the time the power started going out was like maybe 91, 92, which means like the last music that reached over to us was like Tina Turner and Michael Jackson. Got it. And then like the connection to America cut off. And then it's like I teleported into 97. At that point, I think Tupac and had just gotten shot. Yes. And Biggie like, was dead. Yeah. By that point. I think like, like I had missed, like I had missed. You missed a big second. Everything. I mean, I missed. Simpsons being a popular TV show. I didn't know what that was. Right. I missed Nirvana. Oh, I was wearing Nirvana like, shirt today. <laughs> like, I missed everything. I was like, it was like you put me in a basement for seven years and then I popped out being like, hey guys, what's going on? And now you work at Spotify. <laughs> I know. It took me so a while to wild. catch up. There you but, go. you know, you don't have to know a lot about catalog music to work at Spotify. No. No, that's just fair. Fair enough. <laughs> you do, but. Hey, music is, uh, there's all sorts of music for everybody out there. That's true. I don't know if they know that much about music to work at MTV either, so. My artist of the decade was uh, Willie Nelson. That's what's up. I know. I was like, okay, Willie and I, (laughs) we've been rolling deep apparently for 10 years. Wow. Which was, I found that a bit surprising. Kanye was number two. I also found that surprising. Oh, tight. I thought it would be 
it's a weird duo. Maybe they should do a little collab. Yeah, Willie I think those two have uh, those two have been in each other's ecosystems. I could see that maybe up in Wyoming. <laughs> um, sorry. So yeah, high school. I think mostly because um, a lot of black kids in my high school, a lot of them interested in rap music. You sort of just you become like you in become that, the community. Yeah, you're really in the community, and that's what it is. And so I uh, became really good friends with a guy named Toki Wright, yep. who's who's like a local rapper. He's now at the Berkeley School of Music. Okay. And um, he sort of started. Did he also to do Hamburger Helper, the Hamburger Helper mixtape? Am I mixing that up? I don't. I don't know. Okay. I can't say one way or another. Okay. I'll keep yeah. talking. I'm going to look yeah. that up. Look up Toki, right? The other person I became really close friends with is a man named Stefan Alexander, who's known as like POS, um, who's in a crew called Doomtree. Shout out to Steph. Shout out to Doomtree. Yeah. Good people. Good people. I love him. Steph and I are still really, really close friends. And then that sort of led into this world where I met Adam Garcia and a few other people, just like random kids and DJs. And then... As I started college, I ended up getting like a studio space in a studio space with a bunch of folks who were running this magazine called Life Sucks Die. Life Sucks, Sucks Die. Die. It was like a graffiti slash rap magazine. You would love this thing. You should look it up. I know, Life I Sucks Die magazine. I love that. And it was ran by a guy named Wes Winship, who now runs Burlesque Design, Mike Davis, who is like rolls with Adam Garcia. He's also a designer. Okay, and yeah, George think, Thompson III, who's okay. like an incredible painter in LA. It's just amazing. But- they also started this thing called Dre Day. Dre Day, okay, yeah. but like the song Dre Day. No, the like Completely event different. celebrating Dre's birthday, and they like ran this thing for ten years, That's which really was cool. like parties all over the world celebrating Dre's birthday. It was a pretty, it was a, they're they're a cool crew. So Life ha- sucks die. So then, what was your interaction with them? Like, were, were you working on events with them, or you were just like this was just a crew that y'all rolled together? I think we were just a part of a like. I, I can't even say I was a part of their crew. I was always, I felt like I was always on the outskirts of all of these different people. Hmm. I, at the time... Oh yeah, Toki was involved with... Was he? With Hamburger Helper. There you go. You know more than I do. <laughs> you know more than I do. There you go. So we were in high school together and that's sort of how it all connected. I don't know Toki for, at all, but yeah. aside from you and Adam. But, he's yeah. such a lovely human being. You should interview him. Although he's not really a son of any immigrants. But That's okay. It'd be yeah, good just to for talk. For a different one. Yeah. yeah, he can tell you a lot about... Yeah, he's just an incredible human being. We Okay, so the place where I was heavily engaged was local politics. And that was like Toki was too, because when we were kids, we met this man. I first, like, like, I got into a little bit of trouble, not a ton, but there was um, a couple of my friends who were Hmong got expelled from school. And so, and the reason they got expelled was not because they were bad students for any reason, but because they had to take care of their younger siblings when their parents were working, which right. means they weren't in school. Right. And so they got expelled because they missed too many days. Right. And so... Which happens a lot with, with, with yeah, with these communities. Yeah, where you're like, this is a cultural misunderstanding. <laughs> these kids are really good kids. And so I sort of started to kind of like just push buttons a little bit too much at my school to the point that I was like constantly getting into detention. Um, and an old white guy named Rich Mammon, you can look him up, Richard Mammon the third. He's the sh- like, I think he like saved mine and Toki's life. He saved many lives, but we are among them. And he was uh, working for this place called the Youth Coordinating Board for the city of Minneapolis. And he loved finding kids that were like really vocal they were kind of getting into trouble, but for the right reasons. Like oh, he was that's just like, so I believe in kids. 
And he said it and he was like, you guys got complaints. You don't think the city's listening to you? And we're like, yeah, we got complaints. And we're like 15. Wow. And he set up this thing called the Mayor's Youth Council. And at the time, Sharon Sales Belton was the mayor. She was like the first female African-American mayor of Minneapolis. She was amazing. And he was like, I will set this up for you. And it was eight of us. And any law that got passed in the city or any like ordinance had to go through us first if it impacted anyone under 18 and then we would give her a recommendation that's so it was cool incredible like it was absolutely incredible which then got me involved much more like politically into the city with all these different communities so rap and like music was always on the outskirts because sometimes we would put together events and then we'd need somebody right. to like play right. but oftentimes they were like rock the vote event we started this thing where we had all of the high schools vote and even though like their vote didn't eventually count, right. you know what I mean? Right, but right, like right, it right. like created this public advocacy and, and engagement in schools that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So it sounds just like more of like a like a cultural mix based on age group, location, and also mutual shared interests that somehow turned into a, had a, a strong activism piece to it too. It definitely did. It absolutely did. There was like even a moment I remember I remember being fifteen, we were we all had jobs because we all came from poor families because we lived in a shit neighborhood. And um, and everyone would get their paycheck, kind of like you when you got your $700 like year-end oh, report. God. And you're like, why am I, like, I make so little money. Why am I paying taxes? Yeah, exactly. And, Those, that Q4 spend is going to yeah. be killer this year. <laughs> and I remember one of us was like nerding out and was like, wait, this is taxation without representation because none <laughs> of us could vote. And yeah. we were all getting taxed. And it is a legitimate argument. And so Rich, Dick Mammon, the guy who's like the awesomest Richard white Mammon, guy. Richard Mammon, shout out to Richard yeah, Mammon. Best, best man ever. Um, he was like, well, you guys should do something about it. And so he had us, I mean, we made was it all the Was he a teacher? Like, how do you even- No, he just worked for like all of these like youth programs in the city. So cool. And he had always done it. He was like an organizer. He, I mean, he must be like 75 now. He's still doing it. I've got yeah. the scholarship at my old high school. I started it with Richard because I was like, I want to help out. Like, because nobody's doing anything back there anymore. And I'm like, okay, I'm in a place where I can help now. Like, what can I do? Yeah. And so Mammon was like, well, maybe like pick a kid. And I was like, well, that's really weird. Like, why don't I like set up a scholarship and like, let's go there and let's figure it out and like figure out like an application system. And Mammon was like, well, do you really want to make him do an application? Like, do you care? And I was mm. like, no, like I don't want anyone telling me their like sob story and then I say, oh, you are worthy of this money to go to college. You know what I mean? Mm, like it just yeah. seemed kind of fucked up. Yeah. And then we were like, well, how Too are we going to do it? Yeah. And I remember doing that when I was like applying for colleges and everyone was always like, tell me your wartime story. And I'm like, man, like, do I have to do this for money? Like, so some like rich white guy can be like, oh, you've suffered enough. I'll give you $5,000 yeah, exactly. so from Papa good. John's, you I know? know? And you're yeah, like, for sure. I don't want to do yeah. this. Let I me stigmatize you <laughs> some more yeah. so that I can throw a check at you. Yeah, yeah, please tell me more of your sob story. So I really don't want to do this. But feel and, free to tell your sob story. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, this is a great place for <laughs> I will give you no money in return. <laughs> I know, because I have zero dollars. Yeah. So <laughs> It's an equal exchange. I'll just bore you with it and you pay me nothing. So then we started and the only rule we have, so I'm like, I don't care what your GPA is. Oh I don't care like if you're a citizen or not. I don't care if you're here legally or legally. I don't give a shit. The only rule is the kids decide. What kind of legislation would pass your desk? Um, oh, back when we were in Mayor's Youth Council? Yeah. Things like, so one of them was truancy laws in the city. So we actually helped change the truancy laws for people who are like 
of different immigration status who had different families and like so it wasn't around how many days you miss but actually your performance in school that's really cool that was one of them there was a lot of things like like stupid well to me they now in retrospect seem like stupid things in reality they were really important things when you're a teenager one was like the mall of america which is like yeah the massive mall yeah they had a curfew where at 6 p.m you would like if you were under a specific age you couldn't go in anymore oh weird and for unaccompanied by an adult yeah and for a lot of like parents that was actually a safe place to send their like teenagers if they couldn't watch them at home right or like even if you're like 13 14 like you're fine to be by yourself at the mall but like your parents don't know where else to put you especially like in minnesota you have to realize like it's cold outside in the winter yeah like you can't just go outside and hang out like unless you're in a safe and warm space you're like in danger of like getting a terrible illness or like freezing gang culture after a certain point, was it just that? There was. I guess GDs were really big in my high school. There was a little bit GDs. of the, the gangster disciples from Chicago. I was in the Asian club. You were in the Asian club? Yeah. All right, there you go. Shout out. It's because the, <laughs> the Somali club wouldn't take me. I was like, I want to be a part of a club. And there they were go. like, not yeah, All this the monk one. kids are like, yeah. yo, that's what's up. Yeah, but the Asian kids did breakdance. And so I was like, they do cool stuff. Yes. Yeah. And they sang a lot of something R&B. Something about our so bodies. Like- <laughs> something about the I, our bone structure <laughs> yeah. actually makes it makes us more conducive to that. Yeah. It's, it's so funny, just yeah. aside for that, because I used to be back in the day and still... Um, I still watch like Battle of the Year, and and, and uh, Battle of the Year traditionally for the listener was a uh, breakdance crew battle that would happen primarily in Europe, um, and then um, you know America had its own like b-boy summit, like freestyle session culture, which is very based in LA West Coast culture. Uh, but then there was a certain body type that started to like elevate itself. What's that? Tell me. Like, like um the small compact body especially when threading and like more intricate style and footwork in combination with like more, um, um, more dynamic uh, power moves. So like you have to move faster, you have to, you have to uh, create more torque through your midsection. And then me, I actually weigh more in my bottom half and I have big feet. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like I can't, it's hard for me to physically like, get I can't, around. I can't create enough torque. Exactly. And then some of these kids got uh, long legs, um, small feet and also small torsos, they're just killing it, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's, it's like kind of like, uh, if you, if you, if you're at six, five, there's probably, they're going to tell you to play basketball. Yeah. You, need, certain, you yeah. need a different endeavor. Yeah, exactly. There's a certain body type that just is more conducive to b-boying. It's, it's interesting. I never even got close. <laughs> Not even, I failed gym. I was so physically inept. <laughs> I try to convince them that uh, that having an extracurricular in chess should count towards sport. It's a it's a sport. Yeah, I was just chess player in high school. That's what's up. That's like that's the one Eastern European thing I stuck to. I was <laughs> like, I'm not letting go of my heritage. So did did they take you on that? I love that you. I love that no, you're fighting these battles. No, absolutely so early. not. They were like, you have to pick up a sport. So then I tried out. I had to do a pull up. I had to pick up a sport. I remember trying out for badminton. But like in a monk school, you're fucked. Like they're so good. Like those <laughs> girls are so good. I, I thought That's it was so true. easy. It was not easy. They were like best in state. Yeah. I couldn't even make it to junior varsity as a senior in badminton. They were like, absolutely not. Why did I, I played volleyball, I think. Yeah. Why is it like, especially when tabletop tennis and badminton, what I is think it it's about those? it's a culturally those... popular sport and you yeah. get used to it. If you play it in your family, I mean, all the Bosnians are no really good at basketball and soccer because that's all they played when they were growing up. Right. But you weren't a soccer kid. No. Yeah. I just wasn't a sporty kid. Yeah. Like, yeah, I was Me like, neither. I was the kid walking around with a clipboard trying to organize everybody. 
I love it, getting signatures. <laughs> yeah, I was like the nerd. And to this day, I'm like the same way. That's Even now up. in music, like my my area of expertise is not that on the creative side. It's much more on like the the strategic side. Yeah. Oh, wait, so yeah. I have to jump into that. So, okay, so yeah. a bit of a fast forward. Um, what, right now you are a VP of brand and marketing Spotify. Yep. Right, but also you have a great... Um, history or great uh, uh, track record trajectory from McCann to United, Droga. I'm just literally looking at your LinkedIn right here. You were at um, Ogilvy. Yeah. Right? You've done so much great stuff. Like, what was your track there? Because that is, you know, that's that's also hard to get into. Yeah, I mean, it, when you look at my resume, and I and I say this to a lot of young people, it always looks like they're like, oh, you've, you've had a lot of jobs. And I'm like, yeah but I've been pretty much doing it with the same people. You mm. know what I mean? Or like connections, the same connections that I've had. Yeah. And I'm sure that's the same for you. Like you meet somebody, you, you want to work with them again. They're interesting. They want your brain on yeah. something and it just sort of like connects. Yes. So we I just started- elevated together. Yeah. I started in advertising. I was working at a first, I was working at a nightclub after college called First Avenue. Where in Prince, Minneapolis? Yeah, where Prince shot Purple Rain. That's so dope. I was there for years. I love that job more than anything else in the world. Lake Minnetonka. But yeah. <laughs> Cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself. <laughs> and then he's like, that's not Lake Minnetonka. Yeah. Honey. <laughs> Apollonia <laughs> was yeah. such a swam fool. Swam in a dirty lake, Apollonia. <laughs> um, so I worked at First Ave for a couple of years. I was the publicist there. Um, first, I like started as like the door girl, then like security girl, then like cocktail waitress girl, bartender girl, the everything. like phone girl, and then eventually um, publicist. And then um, the club got like they were the two owners were fighting. I just remember there was a moment. I think I was in my early twenties. We hadn't been paid for months, and I literally was like trading favors for guest list spots. Where I was like with like Pizza Luce, which is like this restaurant down the street. I yeah. would put their people on the guest list for like the strokes, and they'd be like, "Sweet, you get a week of free food." And it was that bad. None of us were getting paid. And then I remember just being like, what am I doing? Like, I'm a college educated person. Like, yeah. I should just get like a real job. Yeah. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And there was this ad agency locally called Carmichael Lynch in Minneapolis. And I went there first and I cold called them. I was like, hey, you guys throw a party. And they did once a year at First Ave. And I called the guy and I was like, do you need like an intern? Like, I'll take any job. I don't care. I'll take any job. And so they took me in and they put me in like account management which is like dealing with clients. So it's a lot of liaising, liaising, how do you say it? Say uh, it. I would say liaising. Liaising. Maybe yeah. that's, that is the right. I'm ESL. So sometimes like I, I feel like the need, I'm like, I'll say it 10 times until yeah. it's right. Liaising. Liaising. Yeah. Liaising. Liaising. Google that shit. <laughs> <laughs> what's the, yeah. What's the verb yeah. of liaising? <laughs> liaising. I think. Yeah, I'll keep rambling while you're Googling. Yeah, they go, oh, liaison verb, verb form of li yeah. uh, liaise. It is liaising. Liaising. Liaisoning. <laughs> Come on, you <laughs> stupid fucking Google machine. Liaise. Um, Google liaise this for us. I know. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Conjugate it. <laughs> Maybe it's not even a word. I know. We're, we're doing it. We're close. We're close. I found out recently I made up a word, but I like it, so I keep using it. Yeah. Choiceful, being choiceful. That's a, that sounds like that should be a word, though. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I it's think like, so too. Like so you can use it. You should use it. Cho yeah, choiceful. Choiceful. I'm being, being choiceful about this. I'm being this. choiceful. Yeah. Maybe choicefulness. that's the name of the episode. Choicefulness. I think that's the word that isn't the word. Choiceful maybe is a word. Choicefulness is not. 
Anyway, so anyway. I got a job in advertising. I met a lot of incredible people. I stopped being the liaison between the clients and the ad world because I was better on the strategic side, on yeah. the like, more like informed data wonk side. Yeah. So you, you were always about clipboards and data? A little bit. Like I stayed a chess player through and through. That's cool. Yeah. And like I can think creatively. I think like a good data interpreter needs to be able to like think creatively. Really? But I was always more and maybe this comes from like my time in working in politics a little bit. I was yeah. always interested in polling and how people made decisions and yeah. what drove one kind of impression over another and how do people form their perceptions. And a lot of that is social psych, but a lot of social psych is like right. knowledge of economics and business models and all that right, stuff. Right. Well, so can I ask in, in yeah. terms of a uh, strategy and also uh, the way that you deal with identity, I was I was watching your your TEDx UConn talk. Yeah, and I, it was first of all it was a great talk. Thanks, man. I, it was great content, and I, I think especially in the pre-Trump era, the idea yeah. of dealing with identity from an, uh, a corporate perspective. What what my struggle is sometimes is within large corporate structures, and I'm not talking about any the structure that I'm in or the structure you're in, or yeah. but I think it's systemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like. The individuals often don't deal with their own identities within the organization, but organizations are often tasked with creating content uh, that addresses identity in some capacity. So if we can't be honest with ourselves within our organizations, how can we be honest to the audience that we're trying to speak to? There's that disconnect. Yeah. Right? And especially now it's such... I think right now there's such like a bright light on identity. Like yeah. Was it yesterday? Was Friday? Thursday night? I went to see Malcolm Gladwell talk to Ezra Klein about Ezra's new book, mm. which I think is like why we're polarized or something. Was like he that. interviewing? Uh, Malcolm was interviewing Ezra. I gotcha. And the first question Malcolm said was like, "Hey, can you list all of your identities for me, and then list them in order of what's most important to you and least important?" And Ezra went through like vegan, Jewish, father, like all this stuff. And the one thing he brought up that I thought was interesting because I personally, I. I have this fear of identity politics like seeping into every part of our lives mm. or like like it's a slippery or, slope. Yeah, or just like assigning identity to myself in every like the fact that I'm Bosnian, right? Or the fact that I'm a refugee. Is that relevant at all moments in my life? Yes. You know what I mean? Like yes. the way I make a decision at work or you know what I mean? Do, or like yeah, do close I have to a think about this again? Yeah, it's my the fact that I'm a refugee completely irrelevant. Yeah. But sometimes it, it does come up. Like recently I had a person say to me at work, um, they were just, and they were like genuine. I don't think this comment was said to be offensive. I think they were just kind of saying like, oh, do you think that you're a bit more like direct at work because you're Bosnian? And there is, and so like you make the face and mm. now I think about it and I'm like, actually there is a directness to Bosnian culture, the way we communicate. Even that TEDx talk, I opened with the proverb, which is common there, which is tell the truth and run. Mm. There's like an immediate directness. And I work for a Swedish company where there isn't an immediate directness. And so I'm like, is that person saying that to offend me? No, they're right. actually saying something that is a truism. Like, yeah. There is a directness to this culture. But then I was like, but I'm also a New Yorker. Yes. And like, there's a directness. Like I've been in New York since 2008. Like I went back to Minneapolis for a little bit, but I've been here for over a decade. And so I'm like, could it be that I'm actually a New Yorker that the directness is right. coming from? Like, I'm sure it all adds into each other. Yeah, and then I'm like, itself. wait, I'm like an executive at this company. Yeah, name me one executive here who isn't direct. Maybe yeah. it's just a leadership trait. You know, like and so, yeah. like it could be any of these things. And instead of me being like, oh, how dare they? <laughs> 
how dare you how dare suggest you. i was like i mean that could be true it could also be because i'm a leader it could also be because i'm a new yorker right oh maybe they're all attributes that also yeah. make you a good leader yeah or maybe it's just my fucking personality for like, sure yeah. These things. Yeah, yeah, yeah like exactly. if you ask my mom she'd be like she was born bossy like she's like this all the time <laughs> yeah but i think the one thing that's missing or at least i notice it's sometimes missing in myself is that benefit of the doubt for the other person. Like sometimes if I'm like being impatient or I'm tired or I'm crabby or I haven't eaten, I don't assume good intent. Mm. I would have like, if I hadn't eaten that day and that was the comment I got, I would have been like, what do you think all Bosnians are like? You think all Bosnians are aggressive? You know, like yeah. I would have like went at this person, yeah. but then I was like, there's really like, if I just give them the benefit of the doubt, yeah, it doesn't do me any harm and it's like, but do you think Chance, that benefit yeah. of the doubt goes both ways? Because you have to give that person the benefit of the doubt, and then they have to give you the benefit of the doubt in some capacity. But then for that comment to even exist, I'm just unpacking yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For that comment to even exist, there has to be the acknowledgement of of the difference between both of you on some level. Because maybe she's she or she or they are more of a, uh, maybe they're not as direct. Or maybe they do have like more of a, a vocal workaround. Uh, whereas you're straight to the point. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's I mean, like acknowledging something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always try to think about it. Like, even if someone else is not immediately like thinking about it the way I am or is immediately giving me the benefit of the doubt, I find that if I open up a little, yeah. they open up a little and True. then we're in a better spot. Um, I have, and maybe it is, it's funny, you would think that a person who like grew up as a refugee would have a more polarized opinion of the world. You know what I mean? Right. And to me, the scariest thing is is when people like sort themselves really quickly into categories and just assume that someone on the other right. side right. is like a bad person or it's like isn't listening or is a racist or whatever. Like I like that's the stuff that gives me anxiety. Yeah. Because I know how quickly that separation can turn into violence. For sure. And so some I can I can sit down and have dinner with people I disagree with. Like I have one friend, and this is weird even for me, and it's weird for him too, but we do laugh about it. Who's literally working on the Trump campaign. Right. And I'm like, how is it possible for you to be friends with me and you work on the Trump campaign? He's like, I love you. You're so smart. You're like one of the closest friends I got. Right. And I'm like, that's really weird. Cause I think you're really smart. And we just deeply disagree on who to vote for. Right. Um, but you exist as human beings in the yeah. same space and you're friends. Yeah. And I don't think that he's a terrible human being for having the beliefs that he has. And I think the reason I don't think that is because I've taken the time over the years to get to know him. Yeah. And I like, I know that his beliefs didn't just like come out of thin air, like nor did my own values. Yeah. Like they were formed over like 30 plus years that he's been on this earth. And like, I get him. Yeah. Like, I'm like, maybe if I was born the like where he was born to the parents he had, the way he grew up with the jobs he's had, maybe I'd think the same thing. I yeah, don't know. For sure. And so... I don't know. I, I I make it a point to try to be a bit more open-minded. Yeah. I don't always succeed. Sometimes I'm just like, I write people off, which is bad. Can I talk about <laughs> leadership for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of leadership, because you've held a lot of leadership positions, and also that's something that I like to meditate upon myself within my current position in life and the way that I treat people um, laterally as well as like within my vertical communication. Yeah. How do you bring in empathy um, into your leadership, but still um, knowing that, you know, there is the, the, the need to functionally get things done in a high impact culture. It's a dynamic culture and you're constantly shifting, ebbing and flowing. Yeah. I've been lucky enough to have some really good mentors 
and then also lucky enough to have worked for some really shitty people. Yeah, me too. And I think, you know what I mean? And so like, real shitty they people. both teach you a lot about what to do and what to try to avoid because we all like could potentially turn into shitty managers or a time are, right? So one of my mentors was Pat Fallon and he was incredible. And he taught me this thing of um, when I worked for him, I was 27 at the time, I think when I started working for Fallon and I was still a little bit insecure in my own abilities but he just kept throwing more and more at me, like things that I didn't think I was capable of. Mm. And at one point, I remember bringing a presentation to him and asking him if he was good enough. And he looked at me and he said, well, is it? <laughs> and I was like, well, what do, you, what do you think? And he was like, well, what do you think? And I was like, I don't know, what do you think? And he was like, for fuck's sake, Veda, you're the only person that spent this much time thinking yeah. of it. Yes. The only opinion here that counts is yours. Yes. And it was my first time to be like, oh, there is no man behind the curtain here. Like, yeah. And so now with my own employees, the thing that I try to instill in them is that one, there's no job above you. Like sometimes you will be asked to do things that you think are completely like unattainable for you, but I have enough trust in you that you could do it and that's why I'm giving it to you. But I also hold them accountable that there is no job below them. And maybe this is where like refugee immigrant, just be grateful you have a job thing comes in. Yeah, where I'm I like, feel that way too. Yeah, where I'm like, sometimes I'll ask you to do things that you don't think you're capable of. And sometimes I'm gonna ask you to do things that you think you've outgrown. And the reality is like, you have to do both. I as a leader have to do both. We all have to do yeah. it all. And our goals are still the same. Right. And so I keep them focused on what the company's about, what the mission's about, what we're trying to accomplish. Right. Um, but I think giving that flexibility for people to really push what they're capable of and also enforcing a certain sense of humility of like, no, sometimes you gotta sit and fucking take notes. I'm sorry, yeah. you know what I mean? That's like, true. You gotta do both. It creates a sense of just, I don't know that like you're not in it just for your own personal career. Like yeah. I've never felt that I was like in it for my own personal career. I always felt yeah. like I'm here to do something with these really amazing people for a company or a brand I care about. Yeah. And as long as it's not selfish and it's done in that community way, it works. I always looked at it like a stream. Like Tell you, me. you started a certain part of the stream, let's say as like a junior level something or other. And then I come from the school of, I want to be able to do the thing that I, I don't want to lose the muscle that I had. Yeah, yeah. And I want to maintain the ability to do the thing that I used to be able to do and learn skills as well as like improve upon the thing that I used to be able to do. And so uh, I want to know the I want to know the the stream, the sections of the stream that I've existed in from beginning to end, or at least what capacity I've seen that. Or I can navigate the rocks. I know what's what's high, what's low, and I can at least stand in the same part that I stood in ten to fifteen years ago, yeah. knowing that I can navigate that water. You know, but also that's, I know there's going to be a some point in life when technology and also workflow and like the natural ecosystem that we all exist in changes and shifts. And maybe that, that part of the screen stream will just go away and maybe I won't be able to navigate that water, but at least while it's still within my level of visibility, I just want to know I can stand there. Yeah. You know, I find that like, I'm, I'm now being put in positions where I'm managing people who know a lot more than I do yes, in certain same. aspects. Yes. Like I've got this social media team under me that is absolutely incredible. They're brilliant. And half the stuff that they're doing, I, I have no idea how they do it, how it actually gets done, what the connections are. And my role is more to empower them, make sure they've got what they need, trust yes. in them. 
and also encourage them. I think the biggest thing I ask is that they take risks more frequently because yeah. they also tend to be slightly on the safe side as much <laughs> as one can be working for a music company. Sure, but sure. you know what I mean? They're like, they're still a little bit like antsy when it comes to risk taking. And so that's the thing that I'm pushing. But I don't know that part of the stream. I yeah. don't know it and I can't know it. And um, when she hits the fan, it's like, we got to bring help from the outside or from someone else within to help because I can't do, I'm getting to that point. And I don't know if you feel this in your career where you're like, I can't, I can't do every yeah. part of the job. Like Jace, Jason yeah. Bateman can't do the fucking lighting. No, we can't do the he's lighting. Tri he's trusting that guy with the lighting right. or gal. Right. And that's, or maybe that's the aesthetic he's going for. But like when you can't do a piece, it really, it, it, I like it because it's really humbling and it makes you slightly insecure about your own ability. And <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And it's good. For sure. Yeah. For me, when it comes to like those pieces, like I know there, there was that sneaker show that I was talking about earlier uh, uh, off mic where I had the amazing opportunity to pitch a show and then see it greenlit. But then, you know, we're filming this thing yeah. with amazing uh, with amazing partners like that are in front of the camera, amazing partners are behind the camera, but I'm seeing pieces of the stream that I haven't always had visibility to. Yeah. Um, so I, that's when I just, just open up my trust and I say, and I, I just trust that everyone's so good and so dope at their job that they will do it to the, to the maximum of their capacity and also with a level of commitment and that I, I will maintain my my visibility to it based on my expertise, my love of the project, and it's just managing. I, I do you ever like, do you ever find yourself like digging around and ask asking them like how does that work and how do oh, you make totally. that call? Like I, it's such like, yeah. an interesting thing I'm to so be curious. like. Yeah. Um. I I remember when I was on set because I've been on a shit ton of shoots for marketing, but yeah. you know at that point you're you're selling a product that already has some sort of like level of predetermined aesthetic. Mm -hmm. You know so. Um, they'll just give you the thing. You have to sell the thing. So you do another shoot that <laughs> from this other shoot that already happened. Yeah. Back in the day, we've been at Nike. Um, well, I learned how to make sneakers. I never learned how to do that thing. So I'm asking a ton of questions. But for this, when we were on set, I was working with my boy, Jara, uh, who was a showrunner on, on it. Shout out to Jara Milligan. He's also on Astronomy Club on Netflix. 100% um, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So he's dope. Nice. Yeah. He, it was his set. Because he's the director, showrunner, and also uh, Corey Midgarden is the executive director or no, executive producer on it, and he knows how to make TV. Those two yeah. dudes know the fuck out of making TV. No making media. I know how to sell it, design to it. I'm an expert in the sneaker space, so I'm. Uh, but I'm on set, just snapping away, taking BTS photos, a so that I have um, something to do on set. Otherwise, I'm just gonna be annoying the fuck out of them. Yeah. <laughs> Where I'm just like, are you sure you're blocking that right? Are you sure that all this stuff? I'm just, I just wanted to give my hands something to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I also just wanted to be put in a position where I could learn the most, see the most, interact the most, and also uh, be in an opportunity to be able to give notes on set to Conceited or Sean Wotherspoon or Brittany Elena or to Vic Almighty or, where I can, I can vocalize on yeah, set, not have it be yeah. weird, you know? So that was more of like a strategic play on my side. So like, let me contribute with something because you need, we need photography, yeah, so yeah, I'll yeah. be the shooter. But I'm still uh, in a position to rove around and, and contribute to the, the fast paced nature of the shoot. And that's, I mean, you bring up a really good point, which is like, you can, and this applies to I think all of us, which is you can be a part of something new and completely different, but the goal at first has got to be like, you got to bring something. Like, you got to bring something to the table. Something. Yeah, you can't just like show up and be like, I'm here, everyone. Yeah, if you're a dead body on yeah. set, I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Out. 
out. On anything. It doesn't even have to be a set. Like if yeah. you're an intern coming in to work yeah. for a company, like you're not just going to be invited for to a meeting, like contribute, figure yeah. out a way to contribute. I think that's the one thing that I'm always like trying to like anytime a young person's like, can I have a coffee? And what, what's a way for me to succeed in this industry? And usually the, the answer is like, just do the work that's in front of you. And then like yeah. just plus one, like then add value. One. yeah, just add anything, yeah. anything. It's so true. Yeah. It's, and like for, for me, I've always been, I've always tried, I'm sure you're the same way, where the second like there's an opportunity to contribute more, I've tended to try to contribute more. Yeah, but you don't even notice it. Like it's not even that strategic. I don't know. Like yeah, for me, it's, it's always like, I really like it. I'm really interested in this. I feel like this could get done or needs to get done. No yeah. one's doing it. I'm just going to do it. Right. You're it never, interested yeah, in it. Yeah, it never feels like, oh, I'm going to. Slyly execute yeah. this thing and then bring it in front of my right. boss, which is the slimy part of it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I, not slimy. Yeah, but uh, that's why it's like chase the stuff that you're interested in, and yeah. you inherently find yourself doing it. Totally. Like Even my guess is you enjoy photography, so like right. behind the scenes shooting is actually really fun for you. Oh, for sure. No, I got yelled at by <laughs> I got yelled at by Billy Porter the other day. It was kind of dope. Or not yelled at. I was actually it was more of like a bucket list thing for me. I just wanted to again contribute something yeah. and offer offer a skill set that otherwise the, the budget hadn't allowed for. So I was like, I can contribute two hours of my time. Yeah. You're you know? like, I can do this. I can do this. Yeah. I was like, this is, there's nothing below your job. Yeah. You know, there, I would typically hire for this. Nothing yeah. below you, man. It's yeah. a good feeling when you realize like, oh, I can do this. I guess it goes back to that self-sufficiency thing though. And the narcissist, you should take that. <laughs> Send me a link. You should take I'll... it right now. Tell oh, me how you do. Shit. It's actually too long for you to take it right now, is but maybe really? in the... Yeah, I bet. I want you to take it. Just see how it goes. <laughs> maybe, who knows? Maybe it's just a generally culturally biased test. Maybe it is. Although I had a friend of mine from Ghana take it. She did not score high. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. What do you think was the differences there? Or do you want to even, you don't even have to surmise that. So just pull up her results, start sharing it live live <laughs> on air. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Um, so I would love to talk a little bit about uh, what you currently do at Spotify. Um, you can talk within that whatever capacity you want to. But I mean, I can't talk a ton. Yeah, don't. Sadly, then don't. That, yeah, then don't. That's the one thing. I can't thing talk about my be, shit either. Yeah. How do you navigate your industry? It's an inch. So I jumped... I jumped from advertising to client side, which might be interesting to some people who've made that transition. Yeah. Um, we have agency people listening yeah, to this. Yeah. So I, I was at, in agencies for a long time. I worked at Droga. After Droga, I was there when David sold the first time, when he sold to WME. And um, I was still a young buck, but I realized really quickly that advertising was one of those places where, I think Andrew Essex said this one day at the office, and he was just like, the only... Thing wrong with this business model is that you can't make money while you sleep because <laughs> it's a billable you know like it's an hours billable thing yeah. and I just remember being like this is at like it's the most basic observation about advertising as a business but it was true and yeah. I realized I was like oh you're so handcuffed like, yeah and I loved working at Droga like I think it was one of my hands down one of my top like three jobs it was so much fun amazing people work there one of my like closest collaborators Felix Richter is now the CCO he's just the best human being right um and we had like the most incredible clients we were working with from Puma to Spotify to like right. Hennessy we were just doing really cool shit and that sentence of just like you can't make money while you sleep stuck there and i realized i was like i'm a cog in this machine and as much as i love it and as much as i like think david drogue is amazing i'm like i have to like i gotta jump out and try to figure out a different way yeah and then i paired up with mt carney who used to be the cmo of disney and she became a consultant she worked really closely with michael Ovitz, who was the founder of caa 
And so we started consulting for a lot of tech the companies. The talent agency. Yeah. Um, and Michael's a legend. So sometimes being around him, just like hearing him talk was enough to just like suck up all the knowledge. Um, so I spent two and a half years as a partner in her company. And some of the work we did actually did work for Spotify. Yeah. Which is how I ended up meeting quite a few people. And that people. was it Untitled? Yeah. Okay. And I ended up meeting quite a few people and my current boss was my kind of like client. He was the person that I worked with really closely during those years in 2013. And then it was like a, I think it was like a six month gig. We worked really closely together. I went to McCann afterwards to head up their strategy department in New York and we just stayed in touch. Yeah. And anytime he had some sort of a random marketing or advertising related idea, he would hit me up and be like, is this a good idea? <laughs> what do you think of this idea? Yeah, yeah. What do yeah. you think about this idea? And sometimes the idea was great. And other times I'd be like, no, you cannot. Absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and everyone, like the, a part of work, like being a creative human being is you have good and bad ideas and like you yeah. just have to spew them out like a drug risk we, you have um, to be willing to risk there was a guy who held a little book that was titled david droga's bad ideas and anytime david had a bad idea he'd write it down i wonder like i bet that book is still going <laughs> someone needs to publish that thing that's great yeah i mean everyone's got bad ideas anyway so we just stayed in touch and then i'd been in mccann for a year and a half and he called me up and was just like, I need somebody to run all brand and marketing efforts for premium, which is the subscription side of the business. And I just, at that point had known him for five years. We'd worked together in like a, like a really intense stint. And I, like, I didn't even have to think about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where you're yeah. like, oh, I get to work with you again. And it was like some of the most fun time in my career yeah. solving interesting problems. At a great organization. Yeah. And with music, so kind of brought me back to the stuff that I was doing at the beginning of my career. Yeah. And for a company that was like, its mission is so well-intentioned. Its CEO is incredible. Like, it's, yeah. So it was one of those things where I was just said yes immediately. I think there was barely any negotiation happening. Sure, sure. Which, um... I think maybe other people should negotiate better than I, than I did. I was just really excited. Um, and so I joined and that's really the, the focus I've had, which is just to try to get as many subscribers onto the premium service globally as, as humanly possible. Yeah. And it's oh. been like a really amazing ride from like doing crazy events. Like we recently, I guess this, it's been a while since the summer we like did this crazy party with Stormzy where we flew him out and a bunch of his like closest friends and biggest fans from so dope. London to Majorca. <laughs> <laughs> Were you part of the Rap Caviar Initiative? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean everyone collaborates on Rap Caviar because it's one of our content brands. Yeah, yeah. No, it's beautiful, beautiful it's, branding. Yeah, yeah. so it's great. It's Rap Caviar. I think we've been like you'll notice some of the other playlists that have just like Viva Latinos just blowing up as yeah. Latin music takes over. Um, hot Country. I mean, I guess I'm a Willie Nelson fan, so I'm not surprised by that. But <laughs> Hot Country is a vertical. And then recently, we've really been focusing on podcasts. Yeah. And so, like, the oh, acquisition the, of Gimlet has been pretty yes. big. And Anchor um, as well. Yeah, yeah. We oh, And also, we I released through Anchor. I, I love the platform. Hey, man, thanks for using the platform. There you go. No, shout out to Anna Mall as well. I yeah. love Anna There's over an, Anchor. It's such a good, like, Spotify's a, um, this is where, like, origin of a company does matter i do think the fact that they're swedish does yep. influence kind of the culture of the company like they're just in terms of where i've worked it's definitely one of the most like generous kind places to work which is weird to describe a corporation as either generous or kind like yeah. i've never had that like i loved working at mccann i think devika bulchandani who's the president is like the shit. she's amazing 
but that culture is not generous and kind. It's like that, <laughs> advertising that isn't like, generous or no, kind. No, it's not made to be. No, it's not. It's, it's cutthroat and also it is based in fear in a lot of capacity. Yeah. But culturally speaking, anyway. It's filled with pressure. Yes. Filled, filled with pressure. But I think advertising has this really unique thing. And I did talk about this on that TEDx talk, um, which is it. If you work in advertising, at any moment you will get a brief from a different client at all times, right? So like one day you're working on Nike, the next day you're working on Cadillac, the third day you're selling like Tide packets. And for each one of those, it's a completely different target audience. And whether you're a creative or a strategist, you have to put yourself in the shoes of those people in order to do a good job. Yeah, that's true. Which requires you to respect those people. Yes. Like you can't put yourself in somebody's shoes and address them properly without having some sort of empathy and respect for them. Yes. And I fucking, I like, that's the one part I miss about like, cause now I just work you know, on one brand. I kind of miss that too. Yeah. I miss it. Cause I'm like, I want to know what like a 65 year old white guy driving a Cadillac in Florida feels like versus what a mom <clears throat> in Iowa yeah. like wants for her kids. Yeah. And they could be completely separate individuals, but I appreciate the shit out of both of Hell them. Yeah. And I, like, I miss problem solving in that capacity. I miss the pressure. I mean, I have yeah. pressure too. I'm sure you have pressure. Oh yeah. But I, I yeah, I miss the the research part of it. I miss going through the brief part. I miss like you know the pitch. Like, do I have to go to their office or they yeah. come to our office? The pitch is always a thing, man. Like, oh yeah. I do miss sometimes just the theater of the pitch I know. and just like how much people invest time and effort into the whole theatrical thing. I guess yeah. now. Like we have an in-house agency and so that works really, really well because they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, they're led by a guy named Alex Bodman. And he's just an incredible creative. But we do also use outside agencies and sometimes they'll come in and like do a fair amount of pitching. And that's always like you you have empathy for what it's like. You yes. know what I mean? Because yeah. I had come out of that world. Um, which Go, I think, yeah, going to the stream again. It's like oh, I've seen yeah. been on this side, I've been on this, on side, this side, side of the of table. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and some of the agencies we work with are also just like the shit. Like we work with Fred and Fareed, 72 and Sunny has yep. been just like absolutely incredible. Like Boiler's got an awesome crew in New York. So it's it's nice to also be able to like participate in the process, I guess, even though you're not in the center of it anymore. Yeah, that's true. Can I ask a little bit about strategy? Yeah. Uh, because strategy is obviously a really important component of any like large organization. Um, but I know that a lot of it... it there's a it's a mysterious term to a lot of people yeah. in terms of w- what that means and also what's what the value add is uh on the uh onto a creative brief or the way you answer a brief um can you speak a little bit about your approach to strategy and how that's shifted over time absolutely well yeah. I, uh if i like when i think about it here's i'm I can tell you a really funny story of how my strategic career began and then I'll talk about it now. (laughs) Um, But it might inform like how. So my first job was at Carmichael Lynch. I was working on American Standard toilets and we were launching this toilet called the Champion. And there's like this shit you're not. Um, Shit you're not. Nope. Nope. You don't make this shit up. So (laughs) the Champion, we launched it. The sales weren't really like amazing post-launch and they had like bought a tv like flight and all this stuff which for a toilet you don't usually do yeah anyway so they were realizing going ham on these toilets yeah this incredible campaign they made which was really incredible wasn't necessarily like selling these toilets and one weekend this is like where it's like i'm curious about this i'm just gonna do it i one weekend i went into home depot and i just followed people around in the toilet section (laughs) 
because I want because that's what a strategy. Yeah. I was like, yeah, research. Yeah, research. I wanted to see what happens. At least, uh, hope, uh, hopefully, yeah. you expense the the trip. Yeah, over and, there. Yeah, what do you expense the hot dog that you like <laughs> buy at the front? Um, anyway, so the back thing back. that I noticed is that all these people came in with like either a brochure or like they ripped something out of a catalog or they knew which toilet they had, but in reality, they would get to Home Depot, they would sit on the floor model, and they would buy the floor model. And it became really clear that people, even on a thing like a toilet, like the thing that mattered most is kind of like touching a fabric of yeah. a shirt before you buy it. Yes. Is like testing the height and the like strength of the hold when you sit on a toilet. So we didn't need a TV campaign to sell this goddamn toilet. We needed floor space. We need floor space at Lowe's and Home Depot. Yeah. So like that's a really simple kind of silly example of what a strategist should do. Like they should identify where the problem is depending on what you're trying to solve. So if the thing we were trying to do, which is increase sales of this new right. flow of this new toilet, what we should have done is just positioned it as a floor model so more people can interact with it. Oh, that's so interesting. So theoretically, like, there might be another creative that would be like yeah. that would have been working on the Super Bowl spot for this yeah. toilet. But, and that's but just you the didn't wrong need approach. It. Yeah, it was a completely wrong approach. What we needed was probably like a team of interior decorators to make our little bathroom set up sure. at Home Depot the dopest bathroom set up yeah, that yeah, everyone yeah. would want to go to. We need our... that toilet activation yeah. to pop off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you almost want like the toilet activation outside the Home Depot so like people don't even go looking at the competitive yeah, toilets, but... <laughs> right? Like you want a pop-up store <laughs> by the hot dog stand. Yo! <laughs> See what I mean? So, okay, so that's Yo, like okay. a... <laughs> That's a free idea for anyone that's listening, working on toilets. So now, obviously, after post-toilet, mm -hmm. in a post-toilet ecosystem, post 2020, post-toilet world. I've made it, Mom. <laughs> we, yeah, exactly. Uh, post-impeachment, post-toilet yeah. world. Like, what does that mean, like, for a large corporate strategy? What are you doing? Yeah. So it, most companies, I think, kind of have similar similar areas of expertise that they try to get their like VPs especially to focus on. One of them is um, understanding international markets, right? So like the way you would bring a product to market in say Abu Dhabi or in Singapore is very different from what it might be expected in like a Paris or right. a London, right? So knowing your audience is well enough to, to tailor the product or the marketing or the message to those groups, right? Yeah. So before obviously. a creative brief's written, you sort of have to know that. And sometimes it's even like small stuff, right? Like um, for a shoot, like if you're shooting for the Middle East, you got to make sure like the women's arms and legs are covered. Like just even yeah. knowing cultural enough things. cultural like nuance, right? Um, Second bit is, I know we, we did a fair amount of this for at Droga for any sort of like launch of new products. It's just knowing how to appropriately price something. Yeah. Um, it seems so simple, but it is like that math is absolutely insane. And there's like yeah. business strategy teams that are working absolutely. solely on that. I remember, and while I was at Nike, because uh, footwear, there's so many models that exist in the marketplace. And also like the racks are so stacked yeah. that you would have to play within these very specific financial parameters of like let's say the, the Paul George is priced at a hundred dollars and then I guess Giannis is now a hundred hundred ten Paul George is like ten dollars up and then be like Katie ten dollars up oh no no Kyrie then Katie then LeBron does a bigger uptick and then Jordan does a bigger uptick yeah but then everyone technically still for the exact same sport so it, the the price points get so specific uh, within like the five even within a five dollar range of each other uh, yeah, it's like it's that's its own science. Yeah, I mean, I remember 
working on Puma and us having conversations around um, even level of marketing investment between their lifestyle goods versus performance goods. Because like in a consumer's mind, right, like whether you're talking Puma or Adidas or Nike, you sort of want them to be known as like for the thing that they're credible at, which is sport. Yep. But then at the same time, these companies make a shit ton of money just selling the lifestyle good. So Originals brings in a fair amount of money oh, for yeah. Adidas, right? Right. But like how you balance out the investment there right. Not matters. Not like bags and like bags and perfume yeah. for like uh, for these uh, for fashion companies. Clients, yeah. Right. Right. And like you can't cheapen a sport brand by over-indexing on lifestyle. Like I remember when remember that like one. Do you remember that Gucci Mane tweet where he said, "I don't trust any women." carrying or i don't take advice from any women carrying a coach bag <laughs> i do recall this but do you, also do you recall this week? i think yeah, it was like his, gucci's pairing with gucci now yeah so. yeah but this was before anyway i only bring this up because remember that era where like gucci was sort of credible and then they started to make those keychains and then everyone had one yeah so that was a strategic choice they made, right? They said, all right, the revenue that can come in from these like little tchotchkes is going to be significant enough that it could like build our portfolio up. But it was a poor strategic strategic choice because essentially revenue came in from tchotchkes. They lost credibility in the luxury sector and no one was buying the $1,000 purse anymore. So everyone was buying this like $60 wallet or like keychain. Right. Because no they already got was, a piece yeah, of the brand. Yeah. And then, and it cheapened the brand for the few people who could afford the bigger thing. So like, that's a strategic choice. What what product are you putting out there and how much are you pricing it? Whereas like Supreme can put out a tchotchke and still price it at a thousand dollars and they're like, it still right. holds its like potency. Right. Because, but yeah, because they've, they came from the yeah. essence of disruption Yeah, where there was like these bunch of these street kids, like, you know, kind of sweaty, gross kids, like smoking a shit ton of weed, just like, you know, doing ollies and dirt and they limit i think just the fact that everything was completely limited and there's only yes, so many of those yes. whereas like coach was like anyone can buy a right. like a wallet i mean my mom casual. has a coach wallet she loves it yeah. she wanted it we got her one but both my sister and i were like fuck does she have to have one of those <laughs> like we'll buy her a gucci wallet why does she want one of those that's she wanted so one. Funny. Yeah, she wanted one. So like that's again, that's like a strategic choice that you're making in terms of like what's your product mix? What's the level of marketing investment you're going to have? Yeah. So like before, so now I'm sure that Coach has a bunch of creative briefs in which they're like find the right celebrity to help like upscale this brand that we've right. now washed out. Shout out to Coach. Yeah, I, and they're doing. You know what, Carlos Basilo, their CMO is incredible. Yeah. He was behind the Equinox rebrand. He's so good. If anyone can do it, it's him. Like the fact that they brought out Michael B. Jordan to be like their main person. Like, oh yeah, so good. Like I actually look at Michael B. Jordan. I'm like, don't. Like you don't need to, like you don't need anybody else but him as the face of this brand right I now because he's real. so hot right now. Um, anyway, so that's that's another strategic choice that you make. I think the other thing is like how do you position a brand in a really competitive market, right? Spot at Spotify, we have to deal with this, right? Because there's yeah, you there's can a go lot of brands with out Amazon, there. you can go with Apple Music. There's yeah. plenty of other choices. I think we <laughs> shout out to Adam yeah, Garcia yeah, again. Yeah, what's up, Adam? <laughs> Um, no, it's all right. I love him. No, I, I love Adam. Yeah. I, would, I would jump in front of traffic for that. I guy. use every music service there is out there because I feel like I always I have to stay on top of the competition. Yeah, me too. Um, and everyone does something a little bit better than everyone else. Yeah, it's true. You know what I mean? And so it's a, it's a good way because you understand that like we actually are all reaching slightly different segments. Yeah. So then that brings you like segmentation is an important part of strategy of understanding who am I talking to? What's relevant right. to them? Creates context. Yeah. And how do I even build out the right products right. for Competition these Competition is also a signal of a, of a healthy market as well. Totally. Absolutely. Um, otherwise, it'd be so boring. I know. It'd be terrible, right? Yeah. 
Although yeah. Tesla makes it kind of interesting, like he's out there making flamethrowers or whatever. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, those guys are killing it. Like you'd think they caught an L, but like no, they're like yeah. Well, no, the stock just, is at like six hundred dollars right now. Yeah, weren't they just evaluated like a hundred bill? Like only I think it's thirty billion. I 30 think they're bill? right oh. under Toyota. Under Toyota. Yeah. Oh, I thought they were okay. I don't know. It's okay. They beat out Volkswagen, they, which is incredible go. because Volkswagen Group has uh, Porsche. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's tough to beat out Porsche. They're incredible. Yeah, it's I true. worked on Porsche for years. Another like strategic gig. That one was really interesting because we had to figure out how to essentially start to sell SUVs from a brand that's known only for sports cars. Yeah. Without upsetting that core target audience. Yeah, and but they did like, it. Yeah, but initially there was a. Um, and I know this from just like reading about it. The first time they went out with a Cayenne, there was like an uproar. Right. Like the loyalists were like, no, because they were trying to sell it as like a grocery getter. Like they made this whole campaign that essentially like made it more mainstream. Right. And then the campaign after that, they, um, they, I think the tagline on it was fathered by a sports car. So they were selling this SUV all under the pretense of like racing and being in the family of this heritage right. of sports cars. Right. But a natural it, progression yeah. of that lineage. Yeah. And sure. they didn't talk about any of the like SUV features on it. They just literally talked about it as if it was a sports car. And That's, lo and behold, it sold. Yeah. Because everyone who bought it wishes they could have had the sports car. <laughs> yeah. But like we're the responsible like mom or dad who knew they had to haul their children around. Right. And oh, that's, that's like so a cool. knowing your audience well enough thing. Right. Oh, that's oh, that's a great uh, that's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's strategy for you. It's a lot of like, it's choiceful decision making that happens before a brief is ever made. Like, what is this product? How do we position it in terms of the competition? Who's the audience for it? How do they want it framed for them? So even if your audience is a bunch of moms in Kentucky, right. like maybe they want to feel, you know, like they're that single lady in New York and. How you sell them something, you got to make sure you're not making that coach keychain. <laughs> That's really what strategy comes down there to. There you go. Yeah, got to make sure you're not making the coach yeah. keychain. You don't want Gucci Van tweeting about you. <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> I definitely don't want him tweeting about us in that way. That was a, such a good tweet. That's so hilarious. And kind of legitimate. Yeah, for sure. Because how do you not respect Gucci? I know, well... I mean, as, yeah, a, as a as human a, being, as, as a, well, as a as a credible source, let's as a say credible that. source, absolutely. As a credible source, I mean, I don't source. know the man. I don't know the man either. So it's like, I guess, we, what's your opinion? Like, should you just respect everyone up front? Oh, I mean, in what capacity? Do just you, in general, like, I respect. Like, is it true all the time? I don't know. I think, I I think that there is the idea. I think we should be respectful of everyone. Yeah. Right. Um, on the base level of like you know. Uh, empower people to make their decisions as long as they're not hurting others, all that jazz. But like the, there is yeah. the qualifier as long as they're not hurting others. As long as they're not hurting others, right? So that's like the very base level, like sweeping across all of humanity. Yeah. But then when you get into the nuance of like, oh, is that person a shithead or not? <laughs> then I think uh, it's, it's tough because I think we're all shitheads in some capacity. Yeah. Um, I was like, are you the more public shithead versus the less public shithead? Or in this moment, are you a shithead yeah, versus like exactly. later? You know what I do think though, is that in, this is probably a harder conversation to have. We probably, <laughs> while we're running out of time, we probably can't deep too hard into it. But within cancel culture, the idea of redemption is never discussed. And like cancel culture is like, um, it's another prison and the prison system uh, without actual um uh, without actual rehabilitation doesn't work yeah so then how do you bring the idea of redemption within cancel culture and allow someone to come out of the prison of cancellation 
we haven't even broached that topic because there is no because you'll get canceled if you try exactly because you get canceled if you try have you heard sam harris talk about this a little no. bit on his podcast it's really like it's pretty interesting he got into a huge argument with ezra klein and for me it was interesting to listen to them because i respect both men and their opinions yes um but there is yeah there is that pressure of like we're so quick to cancel everyone yet we're not quick to forgive or accept or like help people move past their right. like mistakes and yeah. own them and move past them it was interesting also to like did you watch uh dave Chappelle talks about it how like post-apartheid yeah um and it dave Chappelle has some interesting i yeah I, I have a complicated opinion on dave Chappelle too is it because of his most recent stand-up it's because of his most recent stand-up i'm just like oh come on bro <laughs> like you could uh you could have shown a bit more but also he has an interesting take on Manny Pacquiao and the Philippines because his wife's Filipino. Yeah. Because he 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 actually coalesced the idea of the emasculization or the emasculating, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, emasculization of males in the Philippines because of overseas workers. I was like, oh, bro, you actually you hit the nugget, the truth yeah. nugget, so hard. But then, but then he still does some things which I don't love, but there's still truth there. It's hard. Well, it was so it's interesting because I feel like you can't love anyone, even the people we love, love. Yeah. Holy. You can't. You can't love every part of them. And yeah. we have this weird expectation. Like your family. Yeah. Dude, my, my dad is like a Republican. Yeah, my, dad, my, my yeah. parents are Republicans yeah. too. And so I'm like, what am I not supposed to love my dad? Like, I get why he's a Republican. I get it. Hell yeah. I'm like, all right. Like, we can still talk about things. We can discuss them. Like, we try not to over talk about politics because then it gets a little too intense. Yeah, it's a little tough. Um, but, but like, yeah, there's a, there was, so in the conversation that Malcolm and Ezra had, there was a moment in which they talked about how politics, even 20 years ago, it was possible to be like a Democrat that was pro-life and it yes. was possible to be like a pro-choice Republican yeah. or like a conservative, financially conservative Democrat and, and how we have now sorted ourselves so completely by like religion and certain like kind of decisions and values that are really, really important to us. Right. We weaponize yeah, our labels. And now the only thing, like you have to fully sort or it's unacceptable. So you can't be a person that is progressive 90% of the time and hold 10% conservative values because then you'll be called out and call out culture because how dare you have these like conservative values and then you're canceled. Even like people aren't allowed the space to actually yeah. like have differing opinions. That does concern me. It, it does actually me concern me as like, as a, I don't know if it's my age or my like origin or just because this is like, who I am or this moment in time. Yeah. But it just does feel like it's getting worse and worse. Yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of everything. I think because we have gone through things and we're not kids. Yeah. We're not kids anymore. Uh, and we want to have, I have a hunger for more nuanced conversation, partly why I do this exercise and why you're, uh, you know, why I'm so grateful for you being here, being a part of this exercise too. Uh, I want to be able to investigate things more uh but yeah it's like how do you how do you how do you do that when when society and media also are based in clickbait yeah i was having this kind of an argument over dinner with an old friend of mine that i've been friends with for 18 years now mm -hmm. and we're going back and forth and he really fucking pissed me off and at one point i was just like dude i don't even know if we'd be friends if we met right now like that's what i said to him yeah because we were so far apart on this like idea and he looked at me and he just said, but we did. So that's beside the point. <laughs> and I laughed and he laughed. And it was Great true. Point. Good you know point. what I mean? Like, yeah, we're friends. We don't like, 
So we disagree. Big fucking deal. Yeah. Like back then we disagreed a lot too, but it didn't seem like that yeah. big of a deal. Like why are you bringing up that parallel reality that didn't happen? Yeah. He's like, we didn't meet just now, so get over it. <laughs> You've known me for 17 years. I love that. Yeah. It was a really good little moment. I wish that we would give each other that leeway with everyone new. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it was yeah. like, hey, it's all right. You could have opposing opinions and we can just talk them through. I, if anything, it makes me more curious. For sure. Oh, that's so dope. Anyway, uh, Veda, thank you so much for coming through. Thank you for having me. This is dope. Yeah, this is really nice. I'm just going to stay here for a while. Yeah, could you I'm all just... I'm just going to hang out. We can call Adam Garcia and call out <laughs> all of the inaccuracies in yeah. his previous interview. And we'll do it while listening to him... Yeah, uh, rap his, as Snake Bird. His hip hop album. Snake Bird. But respect to the culture. Yes. For sure. <laughs> Massive. <laughs> oh my gosh. So um, could you tell our listeners anything um, that's coming up for you? Anything you care about? Uh, I actually, you're going to you're gonna laugh. I This is probably the first thing I've done in like four or five years. Where? I, had a, I can't believe I didn't bring this up. I had a prison stalker. So I've tried to stay completely, I don't know if you can tell, I'm like private on every piece of social media there is. Oh. Huh. Crazy. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't realize that he's, he's now back in prison. So, in which I, I was like, okay, I can, I can go out again. All right. Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So, all those influencer girls out there, man, be careful. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, this dude did find me in Fast Company magazine. I want to see if I can find this right up in Fast Company. How long ago was that? It was just a while. Seven, seven, eight years. Damn. Yep. Was it about Cadillac? Yes, it was. Cadillac turns to a 28-year-old to reinvent the standard of the world. Yep, there and, was. And you were said I think it was, the, yeah, it was the cards that got him. He was also a big fan of, of vehicles. My goodness. Yeah. So this is like the first one I've done in a long time. Oh, shit. <laughs> for you, for Adam Garcia. There you go. Well, I appreciate yeah. you for that. Yeah. So I presume that you don't want to say your social media handles at the end. Yeah, no, everything's private. So there you go, yeah. private, yeah. Uh, Google. Google me. Yeah, there you go. You'll find nothing, people. Google me. Yeah. Cool. Thanks you so much Thank for coming you. by. I really enjoyed this. I this enjoyed is, it like, too. Super fun. I can't wait to hear it. So that was a great conversation. I want to thank Veda for coming through. Hope you all enjoyed that. And also, I hope you all enjoyed season five, first gen burden. Uh, you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, SoundCloud wherever you get podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps spread the good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore T-U. Again, thank you to Listening Party and Canal Street Market. Follow them at at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Make sure you check out my other podcasts, Beige to Brown, where color meets pop culture, and Sneaker Wars Talk Back, behind-the-scenes look at MTV's Sneaker Wars. That's just going to be six episodes, maybe a couple bonus ones. That's currently streaming on Wild and Out's YouTube channel. Thanks to Des Jin team for their support. Thank you for, again for checking out Season 5 of First Gen. We'll be back soon with Season 6. A couple episodes that are bonus that are probably going to be dropped in the meantime, but also going to do a full season-ish before the 2020 election. So check that out. I'll definitely keep you all posted later for now. Be safe, everyone. Bye.